As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. I don't have an explanation. The first half was quite in control. Maybe even we had a better chance. And then second half, we gave two goals away. And then everything uh, was fell out of each other. There was no team anymore. Uh, we didn't stick to the plan. 11 individuals, uh, that's unprofessional. You always have to uh, stick as a team together, uh, fight with each other. And we didn't do. We were really indisciplined in our jobs. You can have uh, setbacks, but what can't happen is that you don't stick together and you have to do your job. We didn't match uh, the runs, we didn't track back and that's for me unprofessional. This is Talk of the Devils, the Athletics podcast dedicated to Manchester United and I have to admit I thought we were past these podcasts but lo and behold we're here unfortunately to react to what was an absolute abomination at Anfield yesterday. Andy Mitten's with us, Laurie Whitwell's with us. I'd say good morning, but it isn't really, Laurie, is it? Um, well, it, it's sunny, at least. I think that's the one positive we can make. Well, well, it's, it's not sunny in Manchester. Right, yeah, yeah, that's because I'm still in Liverpool. Um, I just enjoyed the occasion so much yesterday, I thought I'd spend an extra night here. Oh dear. So if you think your Sunday was bad, wherever you're listening to this and wherever you watch the game... Don't think it was quite as bad as Laurie Whitwell's, was it, Laurie? Yeah, yeah. So I should explain, shouldn't I? It, this wasn't through choice. Um, I uh, parked my car uh, on Goodison Park. So basically, usually when you go to Anfield as a journalist, you can park on Stanley Park. They've changed the rules this year, unbeknownst to me. Obviously, I'm the last to know. That's that's the usual procedure with me. Uh, and so they said, you know, you've got to park on Goodison Park or somewhere else around the stadium, pay, pay your money, and then, you know, you can uh, get into the stadium after that. Yeah, parts up, Goodison Park, £12. I said to the guys, I'm going to be writing my match piece after the game, which is a first for me, right? I was the quickest I'd ever written my match piece after a game. The, the capitulation was inspirational. Get it over and done with. Yeah, I think that was yeah. it. Ripped the plaster off. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, and said, you know, I'll, I'll be back after the game. You know, can I get my car okay? And like, yeah, no problem. Yeah, yeah, we'll leave the gates open. Uh, I was then sort of running back through the rain about half nine, <laughs> thinking that were, I, I had a sense that something might go wrong here. The rain was a, a, a sign, the, the result was a sign. Got to, the, got to the stadium, got to Goodison Park. Yeah, the gates were shut. Uh, I was sort of oh, clambering no. all over, trying to find out if there was any any way in. It seemed there was no way in. 
Uh, so yeah, I uh, I rang my editor and, and very kindly that I said you were listening to get get a hotel, uh, and you know seventy odd quid goes quite a long way in Liverpool, so it's not a bad hotel room. Um, and uh, yeah, got got an Uber round, and uh, the girl behind the reception said, uh, yeah, she she understood she she lived around the area and she was like, yeah, I, I know they they have to lock the gates around there, so uh, she 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 had some sympathy for me, uh, but not you know she she was kind of like, well, you should you should have known really, shouldn't you? Um, but yeah, there we go. So I'm still here, but it's lovely to see you guys. You know, what a way to start Monday. Yeah, you're still in Liverpool and you're still reveling in that 7-0 defeat for Manchester United. At least we could just switch the telly off when it finished, Andy. I'm in the mama shelter, mate. Everything's fine, <laughs> mate. It's a different, different universe. Life's still good. Oh, it was, it was horrendous, wasn't it? We'll, we'll get it out of the way. We're going to discuss it. Manchester United conceded 7 to Liverpool. I don't think anybody could see that coming, less me who yesterday morning tweeted a picture of the away end at Anfield last year <laughs> with the away end at Anfield last season near the end of the game. A horrendous night for MUFC, behind after five minutes and hammered 4-0. Whatever happens today, the team has been transformed since. MUFC go into this 10 points ahead of Liverpool. And I got hammered for that last night. I actually stand by it. I think the team has been transformed. But yesterday was an awful game. It was an awful result. But could I see Manchester United getting well beaten? No, I couldn't. I, I would have taken a draw before yesterday. I don't think Manchester United played that badly in the first 42 minutes. No, I, I think United actually played all right in the first 40-odd minutes. It was the remainder of the game that was the issue. Probably... I don't know. Not that I'd like to make lists like this, but it's got to be the worst second half in Manchester United's Premier League history, hasn't it? I mean, it's arguably the worst second half of any team's Premier League history. It was that bad. Um, what on earth happened, Laurie? You were there, as we've established. You're still there. Um, where did that come from? It was a capitulation, wasn't it? I mean, it, yeah, I, I think the first half, United probably shaded it, right? And then Liverpool go ahead and... In a way that was concerning, you know, the defence was was weak, was uh, ill-organised, it seemed like. And then that obviously inspired Liverpool to just really put the foot down. And um, Eric Ten Hag didn't make any changes at half-time. Usually, after, usually at the interval, Eric Ten Hag makes uh, decisive uh, actions that actually improve United's fortunes. He didn't make any changes here because he felt like his team were on top. Uh, but that just led to an avalanche of Liverpool chances. I mean, United just lost the heads, didn't they? Uh, I mean, he said all 11 players did. Um, I think you had some really poor performances from senior players. Uh, Bruno Fernandes, I don't think he um, reacted well to the situation. I think his communication with his teammates was combative rather than collegiate, which is something that I think has you know, inspired this run. You know, the, the fact that players have, have been playing for each other together, it, it felt very divisive in that second half, um, sort of pointing fingers at different people. Um, you know, Casemiro had a really bad game. Um, Lisandro Martinez, I thought he'd been playing pretty well, actually. My, my, my initial thought in the first half, as I'm sort of thinking about match pieces, could it be a Martinez piece because he'd kind of made two really decent clearances. Um, he'd sort of shackled uh, Salah quite well. And, you know, he's got that song tiptoeing through the cop end. And then, you know, the the second half, you know, that, that, you know, that deafness of movement from Mo Salah, you know, put him on the floor. I mean, Cody Gakpo finishing the way he did. I think really showed that okay, this guy's got quality. He's obviously had a bit of a uh, you know a slow start perhaps to his Liverpool career, but they they made that signing in January. United had to go for someone like Valt Beghorst, and, and he's playing the number ten role. And I think his limitations were exposed. You know, it, it kind of the the, the the 
the, the interesting tactical uh, idea from Ten Hag worked in the new camp, but it, it really didn't hear. But it, it was just it was the fact that they they didn't carry out any of the kind of the rules that you'd you'd hope that they, they have done in this winning sequence. And Am- Anfield was just absolutely alive. You know, they, 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 I mean, you had people shaking their heads in the crowd, kind of wondering what what on earth was going on. Um, I mean, there was a I mean, Andy mentions the away section and uh, sort of about 75 minutes, the, the announcement goes up that, you know, they're going to keep the fans in after full time, which is a usual uh, procedure for Anfield, you know, to avoid any crowd trouble. Uh, but they do also open the gates, so basically get out now while you can. Uh, and yeah, a lot of people left, you know, 75 minutes. So they missed the fifth, sixth and seventh. <laughs> um, and, you know, so it was a kind of sparse away section that the players went over to at the end. Um some went straight down the tunnel. Without their goals, went straight over to them, and, and then Steve McLaren pointed them in the direction. And, and I kind of, I don't mind. Like if if players go off after that, you can feel like the embarrassment. You know, they, they just want to get their head down. Uh, but I do think there's a, a point to kind of applauding fans that have stayed. And, and I suppose that is one difference to last season. It felt broken last season. The four nil. It felt difficult to come back from this. But I do think the the bond between the fans and the players it is a good one. And, and yeah, how they respond from this. We asked Ten Hag afterwards, but we'll, we'll get into that. But yeah, I, he, he just stood 15, 20 minutes, last section of the game, staring at the pitch, um, and not not moving. The only time he moved was when, uh, moved his head, was when the the fan that invaded the pitch at 7-0 and, and decided to take out Andy Robertson uh, got escorted behind him uh, by security and he kind of glanced and sort of saw him getting manhandled. I kind of thought to myself, I bet he wants to kind of do that to some of the players after the final whistle. Um, but yeah, it, it was interesting in the press conference afterwards, which we'll get on to. How, how did you come back from this? Yeah, we will talk about that in a moment. You sort of mentioned the result at Anfield last season. Andy, that I mean, it's sort of difficult to make this argument maybe on, on Monday morning after witnessing that yesterday, but it feels like it should be more of a one-off, um, this result. And, and in some ways, that's what makes it easier to take and harder to take because the club have moved on so much from these sort of results, it seemed. Should we be alarmed longer term about the things that we saw yesterday? Or do you think it is just a really, really bad second-half performance? I think and hope it was just a really bad second-half performance couldn't see it coming. I know United have been poor at Anfield, no wins since 2015. Barely scored a goal there. No, have they? no. I mean, it's, it's always been difficult. It's, it's Liverpool. It, it, we, we know it's, it, it's, it's difficult. I think and hope it was a bad day at the office. Manchester United finished 34 points behind Liverpool last season. Even after that abomination, United are seven points clear of Liverpool as we speak. I could not have seen that coming in a million years at the start of this season. We've been hammered by them, but we beat them at Old Trafford. Went into that game with one defeat in 22 matches. Manchester United have exceeded all expectations so far this season. I said at the start of this season, if Manchester United win a cup and finished in the top four, it would be a success. And I stand by that, and Manchester United are well-positioned to do that. Even after that cracking game in Barcelona a few weeks ago, I spoke to someone very senior at the club who said to me, what's the reaction like in Spain? I started the glowing, Javi saying Man United are one of the strongest teams in Europe. And that person said to me, we're nowhere near there yet. We're nowhere, we're six, seven out of 10. So that shows the feeling within the club that three or four new players still need to come in. Ten Hag's got a patched up side 
with loan signings. His permanent signings have, for the best part, been exceptionally good. Casemiro's become the most important player. He had his worst game for Manchester United. He looked like he was struggling after eight or nine minutes yesterday. And United were actually poor in the first 20. Then the rest of the first half until the goal was decent. I laughed that there was a, uh, a plane over the ground yesterday with FSG out. I think it's a coward's way of protesting hiring a plane because it doesn't reflect the views of people who go to the match. I know loads of Scousers who wouldn't have contributed to that. When you can't get boots on the ground, you pay for a plane. I wonder how they feel now, having seen that. FSG, I'm no fan of their model of ownership, but they've invested into the stadium. You saw that new stand going up yesterday. They've been far better than the Glazers, but Liverpool have been poor this season. I mean, United need to clear their heads, like Liverpool had to do when when Real Madrid put five past them a few weeks ago. The goals came at an awful time yesterday, just before and just after half-time. It, it kills any team, that. And Eric Ten Hag afterwards, the one word which I took from um, his press conference was unprofessional. It was. But in some ways, it's better to be hammered um, than just to lose narrowly. Like that Brentford game. I think good actually came from that Brentford game. Really? And um, there was always going to be setbacks. It's better to lose that game like that than... To have lost 2-1 or 1-0, 3-2. The problem is that that seven will just become... It, it, it's so emphatic that seven is seven. I, I'm not going to say it's better to lose seven than 2-1 because it's not, but I, I hope that the players are so stung by it that they make an immediate reaction. And then it is just only one defeat. The problem is if, if that leads into five or six games without a win, but I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think Manchester United have exceeded expectations this season. I'm worried about fatigue. I'm worried about the number of matches. That's probably a more serious issue. But Bruno Fernandes, who was horrendous like the rest of them, doesn't just become an awful player. The cliche is to bounce back. But I genuinely think Manchester United can. United are well positioned to win cups, well positioned in the league and have had a far better season than Liverpool this year. Laurie, the piece that you bashed out in record time after the game at Anfield is up on The Athletic. People can go and read that. They probably already have, considering it was up there about 10 minutes after full time. <laughs> but um, it's reflecting upon exactly how Eric Ten Hag moves on from this point. Um, and obviously, you're touching upon the running and the reaction after that. That Well, the two defeats at the start of the season, but in particular that 4-0 defeat at, at Brentford. Um, before we get into exactly how he moves this team on, does he deserve any of the blame for yesterday, in your mind? Well, I mean, if you have to look at the manager in, in specific matches, don't you? Could, could he have done anything differently? Um, could could he have changed the team to a degree that maybe the fatigue wasn't seeming like it was a factor? Like, I mean, we, we've kind of mentioned this a lot, and he said that actually momentum is, is great for a team because, it, you know, the winning habit just keeps on going and, and energises players. I, you know, I don't know what the stats say behind the scenes. He he does. So he's picked that team in, in absolute faith that it's able to carry out the, the game to his instructions. Um, but obviously then with a defeat like that, you have to reflect and go, OK, is that, was that the right, the right call, that the personnel that I selected? Well, there wasn't much sign of fatigue in the cup final or the, the, the well, last-minute win over West Ham either, was there? So. I, I thought there was in the cup final, to be fair. I, I thought that I did. The, last, the last bit of the game, Rashford looked tired. I thought United, the way they were breaking was... Fair enough. Yeah, yeah that, that's, that's just my thought. But, true. But I, I accept that the West Ham game, they, they rallied. You know, that, that could easily have been a come down from winning this piece of silverware... Um, it's difficult to motivate yourself for you know um, a, a, an early stage kind of FA Cup tie, 
Uh, and but actually they they went behind and then they, they came back you know and finished really strongly. So I, I maybe that was part of why Eric Ten Hag felt that he could select a, ve- a very similar team. Uh, but also it's the team that's that's won him so many games. I mean Andy touched on the, the season as a whole. I mean they've only not won twelve games under Eric Ten Hag. You know thirty wins. That's the thing. It's not like they're drawing matches. They're winning a lot of matches. Oh yeah, it's an incredible ratio. Um, and so yeah, he he will. But, but, but could he have changed it at halftime? I mean, Anthony. As you know, I know got a lot of focus. Um, I, 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 he had a discussion with him after the fourth goal, where he kind of gave the ball away to, to Liverpool's counter attack at a United corner. Um, I asked him about that afterwards. It was probably the wrong question because it was a, a collective failure rather than one player. Um, and he just said, "I spoke to lots of players. I, I don't think he, I don't think he liked the question too much, which is fair enough. He's, he's got to defend his his players in as, as a collective." Um, but there was obviously issues with with certain players. I mean, Jaden Sancho didn't come on. I wonder if that's because we've seen him struggle to adjust to the tempo of certain games in the past, and Liverpool was swarming all over United. But then again, you know, you've got a player that's seventy odd million pounds on the bench. Um, I I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think as a whole, even if you could ask questions of Ted Hag during that game. He's the best thing about Manchester United. I think that that's that's what I, I went in on my piece. You know, you, you reflect on the, the game at Old Trafford against Liverpool when if they'd have lost that game, third game of the season, there would have been huge pressure on Ten Hag. The scrutiny would have been immense. And he responded brilliantly. They 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 produced a great performance. The players were clearly playing for him. And now despite it being a seven nil defeat the last thing we're thinking about is to Eric Ten Hag's future, is how can you support Eric Ten Hag? That's the measure of how well Eric Ten Hag has done this season, that he can go to Anfield, get beat 7-0 and no one's questioning his position. That's how good United have been uh, over recent months. Andy? I think he can be criticised in isolation, as any manager should be after conceding seven. I got a message off someone who works at a very high level in professional football during the game. I'll read it to you on condition of anonymity. Today was extremely badly coached. The setup was bad. The players looked um, tired. They need some days off. Uh, I thought we were there. I thought we'd finished with these gobshite games. It was a proper Ollie Ralph game, this was. Everything just falling apart. No adjustment from the sideline. If the plan was not to have possession and go for the counter, I cannot understand why Bruno played wide. Surely some players need to be dropped and rested for a couple of days. There were some absolutely shocking individual performances. And the final message from this person is, are you okay? And I'm and I'm all right. Are you, Andy? Yeah, let's ask. <laughs> I'm all right. I'm, I'm fine. I could... I thought Leicester were really cut Manchester United open at Old Trafford. I thought there were times when West Ham did as well. So a defeat has been coming. I didn't think it would be a 7-0. I didn't even think it would be a 3-0. 3-0 would have been a hangover this morning. But there you go. And my phone's not stopped and my phone's going now. And I'm saying to some of these people who want to speak to me, any chance you can call me when Manchester United win a big match? Hi, Andy. Are you free to talk today? They they were on to you after the Carabao Cup final. Don't give us that. We know. Not as much. Oh. And, and Brentford 4-0 was the busiest this season I've been, along with Ronaldo. Cristiano Ronaldo's interview. Yeah. And yeah, it's the big highs and the big low. No one calls after a routine 2-0 win at home <laughs> to whoever. No, that's true. And, and Manchester United, they have been a results machine. That thing you're saying about the 30 wins, it is incredible. It's been a good season. I've really enjoyed this season. And football teams lose football matches. We've just got to take it on the tin, take the medicine, and it's awful. It's just the fact that, as as Ian mentioned earlier, 
it's going to be a result that stands the test of history. I mean, because you're reflecting back. Yeah, I know. It, the last, it's the, the worst, the, worst the, result for like 90 years. A, isn't it? 1895, when United were still Newton Heath, is the, is the last time mm-hmm. that Liverpool put seven past United. Or, Historically or seven bad. one. Yeah. So, I mean, it equals, you know, the worst ever result by United uh, against any team. So Liverpool will crow about this for years. So that, that's what stings, I think, for United fans. The fact that this is now something like City winning 6-1 at Old Trafford. It'll be lauded over them. Um, and it does, It does, will it leave scars, you know, for, for future games at Old Trafford? That's exactly what I was getting at before. You know, is this, do we need to be worried about the longer term damage of this result? We don't know. We don't know what the impact's going to be. Exactly. I think just on touching on, you know, how they move past this. And Everton Ag was saying that whilst he was stood there watching the game, he was analysing who was cooperating, who was doing their jobs. He was he was studying it. So he's obviously thinking, right, I, this, this game's gone. What can I do to affect the next game? And at least they've got Real Betis on Thursday in a different competition. Um, and, and, you know, after they've been you know, humbled by Brentford, they won. After the City game, 6-3, they won. After even the Aston Villa game, that, that kind of had flickers of, of this where they, there was a bit of a collapse there. Uh, they, they won against Aston Villa the next game. So they, they, they bounced back repeatedly in these situations when it's been a pretty traumatic defeat. Um, but as you say, I mean, the, the fixtures are so quick. You know, it, Since the World Cup, it's, it's a game every... It's three games a week, you know, as a ratio. Um, how much can he change it? Does he just put the same players out there to say, go on then, you know, um, atone for this? Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, there's not really much time. I, I don't know how much scope there is to make decisive changes um, because the squad d- does have quality, but it, the depth of quality isn't, isn't, you know, complete across the whole team. Well, if you want to read Laurie's piece about that humbling at Anfield, you can go to The Athletic and have a look at that. If you're not a subscriber, this is maybe not the greatest of times to plug our articles, but you can join now for £1.99 a month for a year when you sign up at theathletic.com forward slash Pod. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Right, well, if events on the pitch weren't distracting enough, there's been lots going on off the pitch in the last week or so that we're going to reflect on in this section for Manchester United. First up, progress of sorts in the potential takeover of Manchester United. Laurie, what's the latest? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of being branded as phase two, I suppose, which is face-to-face talks between the uh, bidders, the interested parties, and Rain, the group that are handling the sale or investment on behalf of the Glazers. Uh, yeah, perhaps some United staff as well, uh, so that you know, these guys can have proper due diligence of the accounts and what it all 
might look like behind the scenes because yeah they've got the financial results uh, that are released every quarter every year but there's much finer detail that I think they would like to have a look at regarding you know contracts sponsorships commercial deals the cost of running Old Trafford you know that, that kind of thing so that will dictate the the bids that might then go in I mean they've obviously given indicative bids but you know the the kind of finer details of, of what that actually might look like um, depends on what the shape of the club is behind the scenes um, the the implication we get is that the bids so far aren't at the level that the Glazers want. Uh, we keep being told £6 billion is the kind of base level that they're after. Um, is this a negotiation tactic to get it you know, a, a bit higher? Uh, there's no you know, guarantee that the Glazers definitely do sell. Um, you know, It might end up being some kind of minority investment. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting to hear that this process, this next step might take a bit of time. Um, I think it might have, it, it might be taking too sort of longer than people expected. I think already. I think that's fair to say. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, there's a, there's an idea that there are more than just the two bidders um, out there that that might offer finance. Um, but we are told that as f- as far as outright takeovers are concerned, Sheikh Yassim and Sir Jim Ratcliffe are the two that are um, yeah the ones that have been uh, communicated so far. Yeah, that's the current state of play. Both of those bidding parties, everyone just assumed that you know it's just a straight bid. Uh, I, I spoke to um, people working on both of those and they said, well, actually, what we've offered has to be accepted first and that allows us to look in more detail. To One was, point was put to me, we're allowed to open the engine up to the car and have a look and see what's inside underneath the bonnet. So I do think that there are other finance options as well. I think there's a little bit of a shift towards... Oh, the Glazers might stay in charge last week and just topics we've covered on this podcast, a split among the siblings over over who wants what, a split in the fan base over who wants what. I think it will ebb and flow. I think you had that initial, oh, Qatar are interested and that explosion on, on social media and then goes quiet and then games take over and people talk about the matches. But this is a, it's a major issue and it, and it, it does need to be sorted, not within weeks, but Manchester United and Eric Ten Hag needs to know what he's going to be able to spend in the summer. And he'll only know the answer to that with more clarity over who the owners are. And my fear is that this drags on, or that the Glazers think actually, the fact that there is such a huge amount of interest means that we can hang on here and we can refinance and that would be pretty upsetting to most Manchester United fans. Well, if you want to know more about the exact status of a potential takeover of Manchester United. Laurie and Dan Sheldon's piece is up on The Athletic right now. The very latest, of course, will be on there consistently, so keep your eyes peeled for that. Laurie, you've also been writing in conjunction with Adam Crafton about Mason Greenwood and the possibility of him being reintegrated into the playing staff for Manchester United. Of course, the the investigation is still taking place uh, within the club as to exactly how Manchester United moved forward on this. Um, again, what do you understand to be the position on this at the moment? And, and just reflect on your piece, if you can, please. Yeah, we felt like we needed to do a, a piece because the, the criminal charges have been dropped. Um, so there's no legal um, reporting restrictions. And that is what happened. You know, with, with a criminal case, once uh, a person has been charged, you can't write. Um, a lot about it. You can only write the very basic details because otherwise it could be prejudicial to the trial. Now that they have been 
uh, discontinued. The uh, the reporting restrictions are relaxed and we can talk more generally about the case and Mason Greenwood in particular. And so we felt like this was an, an important piece to do to kind of update people on what the situation is because you know people might have felt that um, you know after everything this was a, a straightforward situation of Mason Greenwood being uh, sacked by Manchester United. We, we've discussed the options on that regard in previous pieces. People can have a look online. There's comment from expert lawyers on there. Others disagree, of course, and he hasn't been found guilty of anything, which is a crucial point. But we're told that the situation is still open. The investigation is ongoing. I think United want to establish exactly what has happened. You know, everybody, a lot of people heard the audio, saw the pictures that uh, triggered this criminal investigation. Um, United are now making their own inquiries on that, speaking to Mason Greenwood himself, obviously. And it's it's an open circumstance at the moment it's not something that they've decided so the the reintegration of mason greenwood to manchester United, it is an option but yeah it's very early days still um but it felt like a, a important piece to write uh and, and get details out there about what reintegration might look like now that is obviously if, if that is the course of action that manchester United go down that there is going to be a lot of um scrutiny on the options there i mean personally Danny Taylor's written a column uh, this weekend about uh, the matter where he he basically outlines why uh, he believes Mason Greenwood shouldn't play for Manchester United again. And I have to say, I I echo a lot of what Danny writes. Uh, I personally would have uh, an issue with him playing for Manchester United again. United are obviously looking at if they feel that they can um, reintegrate him, what the steps would be to make that uh, palatable for people like myself, like like a lot of other people that feel like he can't play for the club again. Um, so, for example, we've got uh, Natalie Burrell, who is the founder of the Manchester United Women's Supporters Club, and she said that um, they need to make a statement and letting him back would be the worst thing they could do. Um, and, and, okay, she's one person, but I feel like that's a fair point of view, uh, given all that's in the public domain. The court case has been dropped, but it hasn't been acquitted. I think that's what makes this so difficult Um we may never know the full story, but in the meantime, uh, many people will be troubled by that audio and those photographs, whatever the explanation may be for it. And I think United do have to take real care and consideration into the wider ramifications for uh, bringing him back in into the club. I'm also writing another piece on the sort of profile of him, really, that's not out yet, but hopefully will be in the coming days that talks about his, his football career before this point, which again, we couldn't write about when the, the court case was ongoing because it yeah it might be prejudicial. Um, and, and then just a, a final point on, on the pieces that we do publish, um, we, we aren't including the comment section because the complainant is entitled to have her anonymity protected. And I think if we allow comments to be made on these articles, um, that would be in jeopardy and we can't allow that. So that's just an explanation as to why that's the case. Um, obviously, it's a matter that we can now debate more openly because the criminal case has been dropped. But I think it's one that still we need to be careful over. Okay, let's talk about the match on Thursday then against Real Betis. It's the last 16 of the Europa League. It's the first leg at Old Trafford. Andy, you've been keeping a a close eye 
on goings on in the town of Betis. Um, how exactly are they? <laughs> don't set me up with it. <laughs> in the town of Betis, Sevilla is Spain's fourth biggest city. I've been, I've been spent the last five days researching Betis. I've got some cracking stories coming up for the Athletic historical ones, looking at the public records office in Seville, looking at the current team. After this podcast, I'm going to speak to one of Real Betis's best players, a World Cup winner, uh, no less. There's some fascinating stuff around that club. And two years ago, they came to me and said, do you want to write about us? And I said, well, you're not really big enough for the market that we write in. And they said, yeah, but we're huge in Spain. And they are. Their average crowd this season is 51,000. Massive, massive club. I said, I'm sorry. And they said, well, how about we do it this way? Why don't you come with our team and travel pre-season with us? And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I spoke to our editor, Alex, and he went, yeah, go for that. So I found myself embedded with the Betis team. And as a journalist, you make those contacts so that when Manchester United draw Real Betis for the first time in history, suddenly you're like, way, <laughs> who do you want to speak to? This does seem to come off for you, Andy, doesn't it? These type of things. It, whenever you withdraw someone, there seems to be a, an automatic mitt and link of some You've got to be in it to win it. got to be in it to win it. Are they in good shape? Yeah, they're in very good shape. They drew 0-0 against Real Madrid on Sunday night. I think Manchester United will go through because Eric Ten Hag's the manager and we're going to bounce back and that's going to happen. Manuel Pellegrini's done a fantastic job uh, for Real Betis. Um, they finished fifth last season. They're in fifth this season. They're in form. They've lost the best player to injury, Fekir. Uh, but Manchester United really should be beating Real Betis. The, the Manchester United who played against Barcelona should really be beating Real Betis. But second leg is in Seville, which should be pretty warm and sunny in, in March. 60,000 will be there. It will be an absolute bear pit in a good way. I really like Real Betis. They're having such a good season and they're even more happy because Sevilla, their cross-city rivals, and it is the most intense derby in Spain, that one. It, it, is, it is a bigger cross-city derby than any other in Spain, are really, really struggling. So Betis are having their moment in the sun. Of course, they're in the sun. It's Europe's sunniest city, Seville. March is a nice time to go. Look at you, like I'm giving, I'm meeting you with all these facts. You know, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that in the town of well, Betis. <laughs> I'm just laughing about when you described the warm weather training camp that Manchester United had in that sort of region, and it rained all the time. <laughs> Wet weather. It wasn't well, particularly we warm either. No, United did play Betis in a friendly in December. There's only twelve thousand people there, and it was a very young Manchester United side. You were one of them, weren't you? Yeah, I was one of them. We had a good interview with um, Eric Ten Hag. There was another game in Cadiz as well and on the wet weather training camp. I love the fact that the Europa League throws up games like Manchester United against Real Betis because there has been a time where I'd call it Champions League fatigue where mates of mine who go to all the European aways were like, oh no, not another trip to Turin. And I realise how horrendous that can sound, but that is the truth of it. And if you think this season... United have played... That might still come yet, in fairness. In Moldova, they've played in, in Cyprus. been some really interesting games. You had the biggie against Barcelona. And I know it's not the Champions League, but I think there's a lot of merit in this Europa League and winning it, and you've got to overcome tough teams. Betis, we'll read the Athletic. I'll give you loads of information in forthcoming days. Before the away leg, I'll do a guide to Seville as well. Joaquim is still playing for them. He came on <laughs> against Madrid in the 88th minute. He's 41. Is he? Oh, he's 41. He's brilliant. He's going to become a famous TV presenter in Spain when he finishes. He embodies Real Betis so much. And I've been fortunate over the years, and it has been a long time since he started playing, 
I remember him playing for Valencia actually against United mm. 2010. United. Yeah, yeah. And um, when they put five past Seville a year or two ago, he told all of his teammates, "You've got to go out, L'Oreal, like this till at least five in the morning, one hour for each of the goals, and I'm gonna I'm gonna call all of you at five a.m. And if you've gone to bed, then you should be fined." He's a great character, and Betis are a great club. I spoke to some Betis fans who are coming to Manchester this week. They cannot wait. And I know one guy called Ian Cassidy, whose parents are from Manchester, and his mum's from Seville, and he's got a season ticket for Real Betis, but he's also a Manchester United fan. So he travels around Europe watching Manchester United, but he's got a Real Betis season ticket. I love the fact that all these things come into play and just talking about them now means that there's less space in my brain for Liverpool scoring seven at Anfield at the weekend. Yeah, we need to sort of delete that, don't we, somehow, if we can. I saw people saying that the Men in Black needed to come round, if anyone remembers that film and the little like flash thing that deleted stuff. I thought you meant the Men in Black from Man United supporters and just sort of, you know, put, put, put the frighteners on the players and yeah, well, say, that's if the you other option. again. <laughs> Yeah, well, that, that that could happen. I wouldn't complain too much if Eric Ten Hag says, right, you've got to run back to Anfield this morning. <laughs> Never mind 13 kilometres after Brentford. You can do what, 36 miles, see how it feels, see what the people of Liverpool well, I, make I, of you. I might have to do that still, Andy, if I can't get my car out of this car park. Well, that's true. Yeah, you'll be passing them somewhere on the M62 <laughs> yeah. on, on the hard shoulder. Uh, there's some familiar names in the Betis lineup, isn't there? Uh, Claudio Bravo was the one who stuck out for me. Of course, had a very unhappy time in Manchester at Manchester City. Iose Perez is on loan there from Leicester. There's people like William Cavallo. Um, you mentioned Joaquim as well. Uh, William H- Jose, who had a, a pretty miserable spell at Wolves as well. But in terms of Manchester United's team for this game, Laurie, we spoke about the fatigue factor earlier. We spoke about the way that United looked at Anfield Um I think it was six changes in the end for that West Ham game, wasn't it, in the week in the FA Cup? Are we going to be looking at something similar this time or does Ten Hag put out the same 11 and say, go on then, lads, go and sort it out yourselves? Yeah, I'm sort of, I think there's definitely merit in that that second uh, option, um, but I think he'll have, he'll have to change it a bit, won't he? I mean, you'd think that Jane Sancho comes in just because he didn't even get off the bench. Um, Marcel Sabitzer to start instead of Fred, maybe. Maybe Fred, you know, at Anfield, you know, kind of trying to, that chaotic element to his game, you know, could could suit the way that Liverpool play and, and kind of winning those second balls high up the pitch. Where he was playing more of as number ten alongside Art Vegas, wasn't he, than, than sitting alongside Casemiro. Um, but you kind of feel like in Europe, Sabitzer, you know, just get get your foot on the ball. He's got that experience at, at elite level, um, you know, in the Champions League. So uh, I would perhaps say him. Um, he, he obviously took off Martinez to kind of, I guess, rest him a little bit, push short to centre back. Casemiro came off to, to rest him. Um, but I don't. He hasn't really got loads of options to change it, and I do feel like he has built his whole philosophy on kind of understanding between teammates and and that repetition. Um, that being said, he also does you know drop people for playing badly. Um, you know there's consequences to those actions. I mean, you obviously touched on the 13.8k run after Brentford. You know he can't do that today. You know they're in training today, uh, Monday at nine a.m. as we're recording this. Who could get drops, Laurie? With you just sort of mentioning that there, do you think there's a real possibility that individuals' displays at Anfield are that bad that he could drop them? Well, I just think that. I mean, I mean, Dalot, you know, Wambasaka. I think that's probably a change. I think he had a bit of a torrid afternoon. Um, Anthony, 
as I mentioned before. I th- so I think there's certain players that you go, okay, you didn't perform, come out the team, and it's not like it's going to be a terminal thing. It's it's a but the team. I feel like there needs to be some kind of reaction to a seven nil. You know, like it. Bruno Fernandez. Who does who plays number ten then instead of him or, or who? You, I mean, Valverde. But who <laughs> who who does that role that he? He has, you know, you haven't got Christian Eriksen, um, you haven't got, I mean, Donny van der Beek, you sort of, we forget that he's um, out injured, um, you know, I think he would have obviously played more, I guess Marcel Savitzer wouldn't have joined perhaps, but um, yeah, there's not really the, the options, unless he changes it, you know, Jaden Sancho plays number 10 and, and then maybe Anthony stays on the pitch, yeah, but Bruno Fernandes, I'd, I'd be surprised just because I feel like Bruno, you know, went back to those really annoying uh, matches that he he can produce where he's waving his arms about. He's he's fallen to the ground too easily. He's he's kind of been an irritant rather than a leader. And but I do feel like over the course of this season he has led more often than not, and he has really shone in in certain moments. You know, assists and goals and kind of grabbing games by the scruff of the neck and, and forcing his personality onto the pitch. It obviously went the other way at Anfield, but I feel like over the course of the season he's more in credit than than not. Yeah, I think so too, to be fair. Um, okay, how exactly are we building up to this then, Andy? We've speculated about the team. What are you writing? What can Athletic subscribers look forward to in the preview to this? <laughs> on Betis? Well, I'm going to interview one of our World Cup winners as soon as I've finished this. And you know, we're going to be asking him questions about Lissandro Martinez, Lionel Messi, etc., etc. Rodriguez, is it? Guido Rodriguez. So I've got an exclusive with him. Um, Say that again. Guido Rodri- Rodriguez, sorry, mispronouncing. <laughs> Third time. <laughs> uh, I've been working on a big historical piece, and I've been I've had my maps out for that one. Serious uh, stuff. So there's there's a lot coming on Real Betis, but in the middle of all that, I got a call from one of my editors at the Athletic late on Sunday. I'm sorry about this, but can you write as a piece on Manchester United's ten worst defeats that you've known as a fan? Oof. And it set me thinking, and I'm sure everyone listening to this will have their own opinion because there's bad results. But I can remember awful draws as well when Manchester United have been knocked out of Europe for drawing against, I don't know, Leverkusen, Porto. But just just, just defeats, maybe it's who you were with at the time. I remember being distraught when Barca beat United 4-0 in the Champions League. Obviously, them European Cup finals against Barcelona have got to be right up at the top there. Um, Manchester City have had the 5-1 in 89. The 7-0, where do we fit the 7-0 in? That's what my brain has got to work out in the next few hours of how badly does does that compare. But we've had defeats what have cost Manchester United winning cups and leagues. So they've surely got to be worse than what we all hope is a one-off at Anfield. Yeah, I think when there's a real consequence to the result, that does make it worse. Immediately when you were talking about it um, before we started this, I was thinking back to the... 1-0 1-0 defeat at the Etihad Stadium um, back in 2012 and Vincent Company scored and everything that happened, you know, following on from that point. The one that really sticks in my head as a fan was the 2003 League Cup final when they were beaten by Liverpool because that was the first time I'd gone to a cup final and United had lost. Um, and that just really stuck in my head. Like, oh, right, this is how it feels. Because <laughs> um, we were so lucky as kids that... We didn't have to witness that very often, Laurie. Well, I think the 6-1 by City, doesn't it? It stands out just because it felt like, OK, here they are, they're coming now. Um, and, and that ultimately, that goal difference <laughs> was the factor, right, that season. Um, so, you know, a few goals either way um, might have swung it. Uh, I, I, I mean, I was in New York at the time working and 
I was at, at a shift and I had it on the screen on in the office and there's this um, guy that was working with at the time, he was a South End fan and I could see the goals going in and he just kept going, oh, they've scored another and pointing to the TV. I was like, yeah, I can see, mate, thanks. Yeah, just kind of trying to keep... <laughs> Yeah, not interested actually. Um, but I, think I was that... doing that on the touchline. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have to interview anyone after the game? Is that what you were saying? Oh yeah, yeah I had yeah, to be but... neutral and uh, speak to Ed and Jacko straight after the final whistle about what a monumental result it was for Manchester oh, City. Sick, I think that was the last time I went to work as a fan. Actually, I think since that point, it was that bad and that hard to get through that you've just sort of had to remove yourself from the emotion of it all as a supporter and yeah. just save that until you can turn off your neutrality and start recording this podcast these days. You do have to do that. I mean, I, I was there, the goals are rattling in at Anfield and I'm thinking, you know, okay, right, professional hat now, I have to figure out how I'm going to sort of analyse this. Um, but I think just a really quick point on touching on the, the consequences. And a lot of people sort of shot me down when I tweeted about this, you know, shattering any aspirations for a title race. I, I was still sort of clinging on to that that hope because you know Arsenal going 2-0 down at home to Bournemouth I know you're shaking your head I can't, maybe it was it was never on but I do think and I, I, mean, I might touch on this in a piece that I write this week but I do think the players themselves actually thought they had a chance of, of being in a title race and the fact that United then went 2-0 down it, it did that sense that that anxiety overwhelmed them and kind of they just collapsed you know they kind of like okay right this hope that we had of, of a glorious possible end to the season. If, if Arsenal have lost against Bournemouth, which they were doing for, you know, a, a significant portion of the game, you know, the, it, United could have moved six points behind them with a win at, at Liverpool and, and catch up with their games in hand. So it, it was, I don't know, it was in the realms. I know, again, you shine me down, the squad wasn't ready, figment of my imagination, but as I've mentioned before on this podcast, seize the moment. Um, and I do, I wonder if that was a little bit of a factor in the players' minds and how they, you know, crumbled so so much in second half. I've got to, I've got to interview a Betis player, lad. Andy, go, mate. Go, 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 go. What is of more value to another two minutes of us two talking about Liverpool scoring seven? I'm going to go and I'm going to do my best to interview a real Betis player and it's going to be on The Athletic in a day or two or three. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. See you, Andy. <laughs> I almost want Andy just to do the outro there. Thank you very much, Andy. Laurie, thank you as well for being with us. As always, if you want to contribute to Andy's piece about Manchester United's worst defeats, if you can possibly bring yourself to contemplate Manchester United's worst defeats anymore, contact us on Twitter, contact Andy. I'm sure he'll have a look at including your thoughts in his piece. Remember, there is that special podcast price of £1.99 a month for a year when you join The Athletic. Now, if you're not a subscriber, you can take advantage of that offer. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Man United pod. But we will be back after the match against Real Betis. I really, really hope that it's not the same sort of tone as this one. But if it is, we'll be here. We'll give you a cuddle. We'll be the shoulder to cry on. But let's hope we're celebrating again. It would be nice, wouldn't it, to just think that that second half at Liverpool was just a blip. We'll see. See you on the next one. Take care. Bye-bye. The Athletic.